Shh. What's the matter, Morty? Great gowns, beautiful gowns. Fashion has changed. No, it Hi, my name is Lauren Garoni. And I'm Chelsea Fairless. And I'm back. I think the voice... The voice is all the way there this week. All right, I'm fully back. We did it, kids. And uh, I would like to start off this episode with an apology. I think we all know what I did. Are you apologizing for the Balenciaga episode? Yeah. <laughs> Something I did say in the Balenciaga episode, which was pronounce Fanta as Fanta. Which is not correct. Well, look, I hate when online people, influencers, whatever you want to say, when they get caught in doing something incorrect, usually the most minor stuff and they get super defensive. I'm not going to be like that. I fucked up. I mispronounced this word, but I was after the show, even when we recorded and when I was editing the episode, I was like, but why did I say it that way? And I realized that in my adolescence, there was a Fanta commercial that went a little something like this. Okay, I too heard that commercial. But I recognize that the vocalist has a bit of an accent. No? Sure, but... Like, this is why I don't say Louis Vuitton, you know? Because it sounds ridiculous. Sure, but these are commercials that did run in America. No, totally. I get it. I understand the thought process. And I'm not even making, like, an argument for the fact that it's Fanta. I think it's subjective. I think it is tomato-tomato. <laughs> And I will say, you know, Fanta, Fanta, don't you want a Fanta, Fanta doesn't have the same ring to it. I think we can all agree. No, it definitely doesn't. I would really love if we all moved on from this. You were like, it's not that big of a deal. Chell doesn't look at our reviews as much as I do. And I was like, someone left a review about it. Thankfully, they gave us a four-star review. And they yeah, were like, it could have been worse. They were like, look, I can handle Balenciaga apologists, but the way that you said Fanta as Fanta, I just can't. <laughs> In other unrelated news, <laughs> Kim Cattrall and Candace Bushnell both went to Paris for the premiere of Emily in Paris. They're obviously, this is a divorce couple, Darren Starr and MPK. Not literally, but, you know, Sex in the City feels like a divorce and certainly people have taken sides and Candace Bushnell and Kim Cattrall are on the Darren Starr side. I don't know if it's so much of a deliberate dig at Anne just like that. I think it more speaks to the fact that Kim Cattrall and Candace have worked with Darren Starr for 10,000 years. Right. And they want to support him. And they want to support Patricia Field also, who right. works on the show. And, you know, Candace and Darren specifically have known each other for 10,000 years, even before Sex in the City. So it makes sense. But mostly I'm just surprised that they had the premiere in Paris because French people love protesting shit. It's like more normalized in their culture. But do the French people feel we exploitation as much as we do? Frankly, we yes, of course they do. So you're saying they should have protested for the we exploitation? Well, we think we exploitation is just what France is, right? You know. But yeah, if I was them, I would be scared of being run out of town. But you know, that said. Love Emily in Paris. Can't wait to watch the new season. I know that you are not on my wavelength around this, but that's fine. We can't always watch 
the same thing. Like, there's only so many hours in the day. Like, you know, I'm watching the Chippendale show. I can tell you about that. You can tell me about Emily in Paris. Yeah. Also, I realized, and some listeners brought this to our attention, when we first discussed exploitation, we made no mention of American Girl in Paris part un and part deux, which is like... That's right. Carrie's whole hatred of Paris is because she has a exploitation idea of Paris. Yeah. But by the way. And it checks all the boxes in terms of like random mean French people, cheesy music cues, all of that. Glorification of the Eiffel Tower, all of that stuff. Stepping in shit on the cobblestone streets. Although, to be fair, and in a slight defense of Carrie, going to Paris for the first time in January, not the time to go to Paris. Right. What else? Shall we get into Katie Holmes' fabulous outfit? (laughs) Yeah. You would think with a show called Every Outfit, we would be talking about specific outfits more, but we don't. But sometimes an outfit just goes round the world so much that we can't not speak about it. And this week, Katie Holmes showed up to the Jingle Ball in New York City in, I would say, Y2K exploitation. Yeah, well, the Jingle Ball is already kind of rock bottom for fashion, (laughs) you know, because it's like a mix of sort of, there's some A-listers for sure, but there's a lot of D-list celebrities in attendance, a lot of regrettable holiday-themed outfits. And to be fair, it makes sense that she's there. She has a teenage daughter. Yeah. But yeah, the look went viral because it looks very distinctly early 2000s. She's wearing like a corset top that is like extremely long, which was such a Y2K thing. It was all about elongating the torso. She's wearing these jeans that look like... I don't even know. I think they would be fine individually, but there's something about it in this context. Like this look called for a baggy jean, like the kind of jean that like a Rihanna would wear with a corset top or something. Right. Each of these elements alone are fine. It's putting it together and it's not even one particular thing. You are correct. If she wore that long strapless sort of corseted top with a way more exaggerated baggy jean, it would be fine. Yeah, and then you didn't really see the shoes or like she wore it with like a strappy sandal or like a like a clunky boot, like a like a Bottega boot or something. Although that's a lot of fashion for Katie Holmes. But she wore it with a Margiela sneaker that looked kind of like a like a 70s running shoe essentially. And That was the weirdest part about it. It was the relationship between the shoe and the pant. And what's weird is that this is very much a look, if you remember the Teen Choice Awards of the early aughts, which I'm sure Katie Holmes went to and wore a similar outfit. So usually you would have like her daughter wearing an outfit similar to hers, but you've just like, we've completed the cycle. Yeah. Once again. It's very Nickelodeon. A Nickelodeon Award. Yeah, this was such a big deal that the New York Times wrote about it and interviewed her stylist, Brie Welch, to which she said, we decided the rich color and subtle bustier effect detailing of the top was elegant and would be fun if paired with jeans, saying that she wanted to create a more youthful feel for Jingle Ball and the atmosphere there. Okay. Not her, like, defending this. (laughs) Oh, oh, this is a, this is why she defends the sneakers. On the day of, parentheses, and because Katie has her own effortless style that should be appreciated here, I love how that's like, when they do parentheses in a quote, they didn't say that. 
but they said something similar. Anyway. Right. Uh, she said she wanted to wear sneakers because it was a concert. Obviously, there would be a lot of dancing to Dua Lipa, more parentheses, and nothing is more comfortable, end quote. Yeah, I think the funniest thing about this outfit is that she has a stylist at all because it looks like the kind of outfit that could only happen if someone dressed themselves. So that's the other thing I Which wanted... is what makes it of the time that we're speaking of. Yeah, that's the other thing I, I wanted to mention in regards to the Teen Choice Awards is that was that beautiful era just before everyone had stylists. Yeah. She went on to say, Katie is, quote, more than capable of looking cool in an unintentional trend 20 years later. It doesn't need defending. I would have just declined to comment <laughs> or made a joke about it. Yeah, well. This is a weird middle ground. Call. Yeah. This is why, this is my point about the, the Fanta thing, is you can't be defensive about this shit. You just gotta be like, <laughs> yep, that happened. It's not defensive, but it's almost like not acknowledging that it's the funny. response. Yeah, it's not acknowledging the response. It's not acknowledging like she's giving thought process as to how this look came to be, but it's taking the reaction of the general public out of the equation. I mean, we've come across this. Even though celebrities interface with internet culture, they really don't comprehend becoming a meme. And then it's doubly difficult to explain. Yeah, and then when they do, they don't like figure out how to play into it in a way that's sort of smart and self-aware, unless you're like a Lil Nas X or something, or even like a Kardashian. Yeah, but I think 40 and above. And then it becomes that thing of having to explain a joke to someone. It's no longer funny. Like if you have to explain a meme to someone. Yeah, it's true. So I don't even know how to make this transition. I'll leave that to you. I guess I owe you an apology. Oh, you finally like figured out that Tar is a good movie? You know, the Tar of the 1970s. So while I was sick, we, we forgot to mention that Sight and Sound, which is the monthly film magazine published by the British Film Institute, named their greatest film of all time. And it was your favorite film or one of your favorite films, Jean Dielman, that I am not crazy about. Right. And this is like a very prestigious list that's it's a it's based on a poll of critics right and they release it like every 10 years something like that yes right yes and this is the ultimate self-report so the film is directed by written and directed by Chantal Ackerman and it's the first time a woman directed or written film has been in the top 10 let alone the top spot right because usually the top spot is the godfather Citizen, Citizen Kane. Kane like the, I think 10 you know. years ago, it was Vertigo. It fluctuates, but never has there been a film like this in the top slot. And would you like to explain what the film is about? So, and can you say the full title? No, I can't. I okay. can't pronounce that shit. Um, we're just going to call it Jean Dielman. So basically, Delphine Sarig, the iconic and perfect French actress, plays this character who is a single mother. And the film takes place over three days in her life. And you're basically immersed in her daily routine, which is doing domestic labor, taking care of her kid. And then she's also a sex worker because, you know, she has to take care of her kid or whatever. And you see her sort of slowly start to unravel throughout the course of the film. Through her peeling potatoes. 
Yeah, and it's three hours long. Uh, it's three and a half hours long. It's three and a half hours long, <laughs> and a lot of people find it to be boring and just sort of hard to get through, but I am not of that opinion. I think it's completely riveting. I could watch this bitch peel potatoes for 10 hours and be thrilled. It's about the silent torture of domestic labor. And what better way to show that than to make the audience suffer along with you? That's true. The first and only time I saw this film, my teacher at Parsons, Pascal Gatson. Yes, both of our mentor. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. She was there by the time uh, your senior year. She was like, this is my favorite movie. It was playing a film forum and we all went and I stayed to the end, but some people left. And like Pascal saw them leaving. One of which is I now, would fail them all, those little shits. One of them being a very cool photographer right now. <laughs> I re- distinctly remember leaving the theater. Wow. I'm sure she now loves the movie, but. It's a brilliant movie. And it's one of the most foundational works of feminist cinema, along with like Thelma and Louise or something, which is why it's so cool to see it recognized outside of that context and it's also cool you're not on twitter specifically film twitter watching film bros who are like just imagine considering the fablemans the film that's about spielberg's childhood as like the best movie of the year trying to contend with jean dealman well a lot of people are threatened because it's not citizen kane it's not the godfather it was a low budget movie directed by a french lesbian (laughs) You know, so it's also very, I mean, it's not a queer film at all, but Chantal Ackerman also made this movie called Je Tu Il L, which is one of the most important lesbian movies in the history of cinema. So she's really a brilliant, underrated genius, and she tragically died by suicide pretty recently. I feel like it was like five years ago, eight years ago. 2015, yeah. Yeah, and I don't think that like mainstream critical success would have saved her life necessarily. She suffered from depression, but she was a great artist who never really got the recognition that she deserved. And she was only born in 1950, lest you think she's... Yeah. You know. It's nice to see her work be recognized in this way. And it's fun to see film bros' heads explode. Yeah. Well, clearly some of them voted for this, right? (laughs) Yeah. Like, the voting body for this can't just be women and gay men, which are, like, the typical audience for this film. And it is like a glamorous woman having a nervous breakdown film. The character itself is not that glamorous, but... She's got a certain style to her. Well, Delphine Sereg is just one of the most glamorous women ever, so she unintentionally brings that to the role. And it was a very distinctly dressed-down role for her. Like, most of her movies she plays just wealthy glamorous women and she was like a brilliant feminist director herself actually which if you have the criterion channel it is available on the criterion channel so basically what i'm trying to say is that chantelle ackerman walked so taylor swift could run beautiful transition because it came out this week that taylor swift will be making her feature debut directing a film for searchlight pictures Okay, wait, one last thing about Jean Dielman. Okay. You can watch it on HBO Max. Oh, okay. Because not only are these beautiful people giving us, and just like that in The White Lotus, they're also giving us the greatest film of all time. Yes, I think it's through their deal with Turner Classic Movie. But yes, correct. You can watch it on HBO Max or the Criterion Channel. Anyway, continue. 
So I was so confused. I'm reading this article and it's it, it's talking about Fox Search. Well, no longer Fox Search, like Searchlight Studios. I'm like, what the fuck is this about? Like, is she adapting a book? It, you know, is it a piece of IP? They're like, no, it's <laughs> she has written an original script. And you had to explain to me, guys, she's making a feature version of All Too Well. It's All Too Well, the 90 minute No, we version. don't know that. We don't know any details about the script itself. We just know that she wrote it. I think it's fair to assume that it's going to be a romance because that is kind of the central theme of her songwriting. I think best case scenario, it's semi-autobiographical. It is Star is Born adjacent. It has original music also written by Taylor. And worst case scenario, it's like a very schlocky notebook ripoff. Yeah, I mean, the way you're describing it, it's a win-win. Yeah, I mean, either way, of course, as a Swifty, like, I'm thrilled, I can't wait to see it, and I did really like the music video for All Too Well, but she's also directed a lot of her other recent music videos, and these are, they're not good. And she has unlimited money, can do whatever she wants, and so that scares me a little bit, because if you have a great song you know, great budget. The music video should be amazing. So that shows me that, I don't know, she doesn't really have a distinctive style or maybe a sort of um, visual sensibility that is pleasant or refined, I guess. I think the thing that concerns me the most, and obviously I have a bias as a writer, but it's like, if the script isn't solid and I hope she has a co-writer on it, no offense, but like, it's really hard to write stuff. And it's really hard to write like a cogent 90 to 100 page script. You know, it's going to be like a less horny version of Fifty Shades of Grey. And that's fine. We watch all those movies anyway. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, We're not being sarcastic. We genuinely have watched all those films opening weekend. I think the directing arm is fine because if you are if you have a really good dp which she had for the all too well video and as we saw in her directors on directors interview with martin mcdonough (laughs) holy shit this bitch directed well actually i shouldn't say the b word this woman directed a short film and gets to do the director on director panel for variety that is for people that directed feature films is wild yeah but she explains that she doesn't have the word for deck, but she's trying to explain to Mar McDonough that she put a deck together of like all the shots she likes and the color palette and all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, she directed the music video. Like, we're not saying that she didn't. So it feels like her visual sensibilities are are building. But yeah, I'm a little. But the anti-hero music video came out more recently than All Too Well. Right. Like. Very much a disappointment, despite the fact that it's a very good song. Correct. Her her sensibilities can sometimes go askew. I feel that way with her lyrically, so we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. But I, I only watched the first... 10 minutes of the directors on directors thing because it was like 40 minutes but she said that she got into directing because she had that song called the man off of the the lover album and she wanted a female director and i guess she reached out to like a few of them and they were all busy so she just decided to direct it herself i'm like surely someone was available it's like did Jane Campion say no to like directing the man I don't know if she's the biggest Jane Campion fan because my other favorite thing I too only watched about 15 minutes I felt like that tweet that was like I'm not gonna read all of that congratulations or I'm sorry for you 
Well, also, I am not really familiar with that director. Like, I have not seen. He's the one that did three billboards. Yeah, that's the only one I've seen. I never saw it in Bruges, so. Uh, but that's what I love is mostly when you talk about the director, you're not like, I love three billboards. You're like, I loved in Bruges. And that's like, she, she's like, I loved your short film and I love three billboards and doesn't mention in Bruges. It's like, okay, that's very telling. Well, she saw his new movie, which should we watch that? Uh, yes. I mean, I'm going to watch it. I do love him. Martin McDonough started as a playwright. I saw his play back in New York many years ago called A Behanding in Spokane. Fab. He's a great director. He started out as a writer. That's his story is like he actually never wanted to direct. He didn't direct his plays. Right. I did get through that part of the. (laughs) Yeah, which is true. It's in the play world. The writer is the strongest person. That is sort of the same thing in the TV world. The writers are often showrunners. But in the movie realm, the writer actually has the least amount of power. It's the director who has is sort of the head of the creative vision. And they're basically creative directors. Right. On a related note, should we get into the Golden Globe nominations? They are so fucking chaotic. I'm obsessed. Well, first, I think we need to acknowledge that. And just like that got snubbed. Oh, I thought you wanted to acknowledge that we spent last year ignoring the Golden Globes as a culture. And now we're like, ah, fuck it. You were in a corner for a year. You're back. Yeah. Well, they changed their voting body. So there is at least one person of color now. right? Yes, but it's all performative, really. Let's be honest here. It's just another like rich group of journalists giving fake golden idols to people. But I'm happy because this is the award show. I like to watch TV and movie people co-mingle drunkenly. Yeah, same. And wear pretty dresses. So best picture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we have to start here because... (laughs) Top Gun Maverick, which I mean, yes, I will agree. One of the greatest films of the year was nominated for Best Picture Drama, but they don't usually do this. This has been a big debate within the Oscars. Like, should we nominate movies that people actually like? Yes, that people actually watch. And that was the idea when they increased it to 10 Best Picture nominees, but they still won't nominate crowd pleaser films. Which the Academy needs to adopt this Golden Globe thing of like, sometimes just nominating celebrities you want to see in the audience. Right. Like the MTV VMAs philosophy. (laughs) But I think the crazier thing is that Elvis, right? The whole thing (laughs) about the Golden Globes is that they have a separate movie category for musical or comedy. They nominated Elvis for best drama instead of musical and or comedy when it is the definition of a musical and a comedy let's be honest here but the reality of this situation is that this is not a call that the golden globes are making this is determined by the studio because to be nominated you have to submit the film the actors for consideration it's not like they're just picked out of the blue oh absolutely this is a baz lerman call which is just so strange So to round it out, we've got Avatar, The Way of Water, which are we seeing that? Is this musical or comedy? No, this is drama still. This is... Okay, what's drama and what's musical or comedy? Okay, so best drama, Avatar, The Way of Water, Elvis, The Fablemans, Tar, and Top Gun Maverick. Okay, well, you know what I'm rooting for. Tar? Yeah, obviously. Best picture musical comedy, Babylon, which is the Damien Chazelle film, which is about the birth of Hollywood that seems like it's going to be the Wolf of Wall Street meets La La Land. Right. 
you've seen that trailer where it starts with someone doing uh, the stars off the Paramount logo as if it's a line of Coke. Yes. The Banshees of Inishirin. Uh, That's Old Mate's movie, right? That's the Martin McDonough film, yes. Everything, everywhere, all at once, which I don't think you've seen, but it's worthwhile. No, that's the one that I'm going to see. I will also see Babylon. Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, which you had the best line this week. You were like, I feel like I'm being waterboarded with Glass Onion posters. If anyone has been on the Sunset Strip lately, it is nothing but Glass Onion billboards. And then rounding it out, try- Speaking of three billboards, it's actually more like 10 billboards right outside the Chateau Marmont. And then rounding it out is Triangle of Sadness. Oh, amazing. So obviously that should win. No? Everything, everywhere, all at once, I think. Or you think that's what will win or what should win? Oh, what should win is Triangle of Sadness. What will win is everything, everywhere, all at once. That's how, by the way, guys, we do our awards ballots is what we think will win versus what should win. Yeah, because if it's what we want to win, we'd lose. Every time. Every time. Best Actress, Motion Picture Drama, Kate Blanchett and Tar. Oh, also, speaking of Tar, I am so pissed that Todd Field did not get a directing nomination. Well, that's always the bizarre thing about awards, where it's like, well, how could the actress and the movie get nominated, but not the director? And the screenplay. He got nominated for the screenplay. But it's like, you think he dropped the ball with the direction? Olivia Coleman in a film called Empire of Light, Viola Davis, The Woman King, Anna de Armas in Blonde. Right. Michelle William in The Fablemans. Best Actor Motion Picture Drama, Austin Butler for Elvis, Brendan Fraser for The Whale, Hugh Jackman in some film called The Sun, Jeremy Pope for The Inspection, and Bill Nye in Living. Do you think he'll bring Anna Wintour as his uh, date? I wish. Well, you know he's going to lose to Brendan Fraser probably, right? Yeah. Although... So why not use this opportunity to make a really stunning red carpet debut with... Anna Wintour, and he'll be fresh in everyone's minds because everyone will have just watched Love Actually. That's true. Well, this is going to be interesting because Brendan Fraser, remember that 2018 GQ article came forward in saying that he was assaulted by the then head of the Hollywood Foreign Press and that he won't be in attendance. So it'll be interesting if he gets the award or if they give it to like Austin Butler for Elvis because, you know, Baz Luhrmann gave them all Rolexes or something. Allegedly, that's not how people get awards. But Well, Austin Butler was great in Elvis. So I think he's deserving for sure here's the thing about he changed his voice permanently for the (laughs) role he won't go back (laughs) another nomination that i was really thrilled by was leslie manville that's what i was about to get into that's the thing about the golden globes is the musical comedy categories usually have a more interesting breadth of people so our girl leslie manville for mrs harris goes to paris margot robbie in babylon anya taylor joy for the menu emma thompson in good luck to you leo grands michelle yo everything everywhere all at once Seems like she's going to win. She's going to win. Who should win is Leslie Manville. I mean, obviously, that's my movie of the year. Best actor, musical comedy, another chaotic category. Uh, Diego Calva for Babylon. Daniel Craig for Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. Adam Driver for White Noise. Colin Farrell for The Banshees of Inishirin. And Ray Fiennes. Rafe Fiennes. Speaking of like a Fanta Fanta controversy, it's Ralph. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's Ralph Fiennes, okay? This is like Stephen, <laughs> this is like Stephen Colbert. The last name's Colbert. The rest of his family, it's Colbert. He just decided to say it the French way when he was in college. Right. Very chic of him. I mean, I'm not seeing any of these movies, so this category really doesn't affect me at all. But one thing to mention about Rafe, which a wonderful fuck up brought to our attention, he was recently on Andy Cohen's Watch What Happens Live. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And the whole bit was, you know, he's seen as a serious actor. So Andy Cohen was asking him silly questions, one of which was, which Sex and the City character you most like? And he didn't just say Samantha. He said Kim Cattrall, paused, and then said she wrote a great book about sex. Which is just so insane. So we know that at least one other person has read it aside from you and me. Yes. And that he's actually used some of these techniques in his quote unquote lovemaking. <laughs> because the question afterward was like, do you have a secret talent? And it was, he said something akin to like, everything I learned, I learned from Kim Cattrall's sex book. <laughs> so crazy. I love that though. Okay. I have a question. Yeah. So where is Bridgerton in succession? Because I feel like those are the shows that people actually watch. Is this just some weird timing thing or? Oh, right. Because the best drama is Better Call Saul, The Crown, House of the Dragon, Ozark, Severance. Right. The thing with the Golden Globes is they do have an obsession with like British coded shows. That's why, you know, every year you'll get like a Tom Hiddleston winning for a miniseries no one has watched. Right. There are some things where it's like there were literal shows still on fucking air, like White Lotus and Wednesday, which got nominated, not White Lotus, but Wednesday got nominated for Best Musical Comedy Series. And then White Lotus, even though it's an anthology series, is considered a limited series. It is not a limited series. Like Dahmer is a limited series. There's no season two of that shit. You know what I mean? Whereas White Lotus is going to be a long running show. And I understand the reasoning behind arbitrarily nominating something in that category because it's typically not as stacked and not as competitive. Right. But I think that White Lotus can blow all of the other comedy nominees out of the water. Like, it's weird. Yeah, I mean, this also, is... Also, Jennifer Coolidge has been on this show for more than one season. That is very true. Although, they are making Dahmer a series, but they're using it as, like, an anthology series. Wait, what do you mean? It's going to be the Monster series, right? Because it's Dahmer, okay. Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. It's going to be, like, Monster, the... Okay, da -da -da sure. series. But that still makes it a series. But then that makes it... Yeah, <laughs> then you're basically saying even Dahmer is not a limited series. <sighs> Also, look, I've only watched a few episodes of Only Murders in the Building, but I can tell you that Selena Gomez is not a good actress. Oh. I'm sorry. This is like an insane nomination. So I just want to say that's Chelsea who said that. If any of the Selena Nators. Oh, are you going to make a case for the opposite? Oh, no, I just don't want to get doxxed by a Selena Nator. <laughs> I just want to make sure they know it was you who said that. <laughs> Look, I'm not saying she's bad. I'm just saying she's not good. She's not good enough to merit this nomination. All right. right. Yeah, this is a pretty stacked category for musical comedy. If someone wants to call in and make a case for why yeah. this girl is like Meryl Streep or something, I would love to hear it. But I mean, I it's going to be Quinta, I think, for Abbott Elementary. Kaylee Cuoco, Selena Gomez, Jen Jenna Ortega, Jean Smart. Speaking of uh, Jenna Ortega, did you see the teaser trailer for the Scream 6? 
Oh, yeah. I'm into it. I love the idea that it's set in New York, or at least that's what we think because the trailer is, or the teaser is on the subway. Those that survived in Scream 5, the kids are on a subway, seemingly on Halloween in New York, and everyone has ghost face masks, which is a big question we had in kind of our issues with the limitations of Scream 5 is like, in this world, doesn't everyone know who Ghostface is? Yes, because of the wildly popular Stab franchise. As well as Gail Weathers' books. Right. It's also, I'm excited for it, but I'm also a little apprehensive because Nev Campbell is not in the film. And usually when the lead actress bails on the franchise is when the franchise goes downhill. I think the- Hence the Halloween movies without Jamie Lee Curtis. Well, the more confounding thing is it seems like the script was written with her in it and then they couldn't make a deal with her. So they had to like take out all the Nev Campbell parts. I wouldn't be surprised if there's just another Nev Campbell coded character. Right. Like some Gen X woman who's like, I've seen this all before. I was in the dorm that Sidney Prescott lived in in Scream 2. Right. (laughs) Right, that would be good. They can bring back Portia de Rossi. (laughs) That would be perfect. I was on campus when Randy's body was discovered in the van. I love that. I was once in the audience of Cotton Weary's talk show. <laughs> Do you remember that's how? 100, wait, what was it called? 100%, 100% Cotton. cotton. Yeah. Do you remember that's how? Guys, I don't know if you remember this, but that is how Scream 3 opens. <laughs> Well, we'll be there on opening day as per usual. And the Golden Globes are happening January 10th, which I think is earlier, but I might be wrong. Not that they're not happening on January 10th, that it's earlier. But I mean, how many people are going to be taken out by COVID or we don't care about COVID anymore? Okay, Jesus Christ, you are worried that I'm going to be attacked for saying Selena (laughs) Gomez is a bad actress and you're just going to say that? I do not... Cosign. I'm saying in the face of getting a golden idol, I think actors just coming off of their holiday vacations might forego a negative test to potentially get said golden idol. Right. I'm basically saying it's going to be a super spreader event yet again. Anyway, L. Oh, God. <laughs> Are we getting into H and Megan's docuseries? H and M's. <laughs> If Meghan Markle says H one time in this docuseries, she says it a million. <laughs> so we have only watched the first half of Meghan and Harry because we're recording this on the day that the second half of it dropped. And we've, you know, looked at the internet and we've, little, seen, we've seen clips of it on TikTok. Yeah, we've, so we've seen, seen the, some of it. The juiciest parts, I think, on, yeah. on TikTok. But I will start with this. I remember H&M. Not to be confused with the fast fashion retailer. I remember Harry and Meghan getting married because you and I went to Taylor Swift's Reputation concert. You slept over. You set an alarm for 4 a.m. And we watched the wedding. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Trump was president when they got married, do we really need three hours of fucking con- historical context to this couple? <laughs> well, they got together a president to go. <laughs> no, it's true. Well, I like the fact that they provided historical context about like colonialism and England and that sort of stuff. But yes, I agree with you. Okay, so that's the second issue. And this first started, or we got a hint of this during the Oprah interview. They didn't leave 
Okay. It's a nuanced conversation. I'm not going to say they didn't leave because of racism, but it's very apparent that if the British public and tabloids liked Megan, and if they if, if the firm had allowed them to make money on the side, they would have stayed in the royal family. Like, yeah, this, they freely admit that. But it's not like it's a protest move where they're like, oh, this is an inherently racist institution. We're going to shine a light on this. It's like, oh, no, we would totally be a part of this fucked up institution if they would just let us do what, what we wanted to. Right, because they wanted to make it better. They wanted to make it less fucked up and toxic. But that's not possible. That's not realistic. <laughs> it you- could be, but clearly the institution, and you know the institution is scary because it's called the institution. institution. And the firm. <laughs> and the firm. They don't want anything to change, which is kind of insane because it seems like the most dysfunctional, fucked up situation. And that's actually another thing I'm, I'm glad that, they, that this series provided context for, which is the relationship between the royals and the tabloids. That, I guess, the new information I feel that I got from the docu-series was was the fact that this relationship that the royal family established with the press started from Diana on. Like, it's only really this way that the royal family functions with the media and the tabloids started in William and Harry's lifetime. Oh, I got the sense that it had just been like that forever. No, but but it was- just it just got amped up. No, he, there's a part where he specifically talks about how they go to these four uh, press outlets and discuss them. Right. When he's discussing the whole, like, people who are royal family experts, I think is when he gets into that. But I think why no one can have, or why we can't be in agreement on opinion with them is, like, everyone is right and everyone is wrong. In what sense? The royal family is a racist institution the press was way too harsh on Meghan and Harry. But also it's like they wanted stuff that wasn't possible. Like the clip that we saw just now before we recorded on TikTok is, yes, it's your, it's your family and it's your legacy, but it's your job. And you don't get to do everything you want in your job. And there are limitations to your job, even if it's your royal like bequeathment. Yeah, and you have the worst job ever which is just going and shaking people's hands and being fake as fuck and holding in your mental breakdown because there's cameras around all the time. But what they've chosen to do with their lives is just lifelong philanthropy. Like what you see in the first part of this docuseries is just them going to different penthouse hotels, getting fit, you know, Megan getting fitted in gowns and getting made up awards at made up award shows. Right. What I also got from this is that I don't think Megan is this calculating woman that the press has made her seem. She's just like someone that's a theater kid that's also like a overachieving STEM child. Like I got the sense that she would be the type of person that would remind the teacher that they didn't assign homework. Right. I don't know. I think she did have a desire for fame. Of course. Which is fine. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But I do think that the downplaying of that ambition is what makes things a little bit sus. Like when she tells Oprah that she never Googled Prince Harry, for example. Or when she claims that she didn't decide to go out with him because he was a prince. She decided to go out with him because she looked at his Instagram profile and it was just like beautiful photos of nature. And that's like what drew her to him, which just does not make sense. Yes, and Megan is our age range. 
you just grew up understanding William and Harry and like the fantasy that they would potentially, you know, you could be their girlfriend or something. Maybe not you, Joe, but... Look, it's normal to fantasize or want to date a prince. This is literally the premise of every single Disney film that we all watched as children. Like, that's not crazy to want that. But of course, she can't admit to wanting that because then she would be criticized. And that's the problem with this series because if the goal was to sort of cut the bullshit and let people in, this did not accomplish that. But at the same time, Megan specifically, she cannot be her true self because if she was, she would be openly slandering the royal family. And even her just sort of like making fun of curtsying people are freaking out about like I understand that it's a cultural thing and if there are any British people listening that I don't know think we're making fun of this I'm sorry but it's not people are acting like she told the queen to get fucked or something (laughs) oh I haven't seen that I've seen when I was watching it if you watch Harry's face it's like his soul leaves his body like when she physically does the curtsy when they're doing their interview and he just is so embarrassed which is I know that's true another Harry issue that I think we get too much of who Harry probably really is which is a dim-witted person (laughs) yeah see I look my take on this is that at the end of the day Megan and Harry are just boring people I don't hate them I just don't think that they make for compelling television. And of course, you know, I always have some level of interest in the Royals. Like we got up to watch Meghan and Harry's wedding, but that was largely because of the clothes, right? It's like, what's she going to wear? That is what made me get up in the middle of the night. Also, this is why I'm like, everyone's right and everyone's wrong because I do believe that Meghan and Harry are correct in the media's treatment. I completely empathize. Oh, yeah, they're with, monsters. Yeah, with Harry's being triggered that the same thing that happened to his mother was going to happen to Meghan. Also, he was raised in a cult, basically. So he didn't even realize that he was bringing his biracial wife into a really fucked up toxic situation. I think, I mean, maybe they directly talked about this in the second half, but... I think he thought his whiteness and his self would just shield her from all of that. Yeah. Like, I'm speaking on her behalf. But the the clip that we saw... But it speaks to the fact that he's in a very sort of, like, insulated, naive position. There's a very sheltered sense, which I first got from the Oprah interview and seems to continue. The clip that we saw from this newest part is, like, and then my brother was yelling at me. And then my, my grandmother just stood there and then... We were like, we're going to move to South Africa. And then everyone was like, I mean, you realize like how fucked up it is. It's like my brother's office knew about it. My father's office knew about it. My grandmother's office knew about it. Yeah. And then it was leaked to the press. So then we couldn't move to South Africa. It's like, why? Yeah. Why didn't you just move to South Africa? Obviously, people were going to find out that you were moving to South Africa and have an opinion about it. There was no way to escape that backlash if this is what you actually intended to do. It is it is very strange. It does feel like things are crucial parts of the puzzle are not being addressed here. And yeah, I at the end of the day, I don't really think I have learned anything that wasn't in the Oprah interview. What I have seen is Meghan and Harry's shitty iPhone photos of each other. Also... 
I don't know, maybe you and Tat have a photo from the first date you ever had, but I found that a little sus where it's like the first time they met up, they took a selfie together. I don't, I don't know. know. That really felt like Megan was like, wherever this goes, I'm definitely going to show my friends that I went on a date with Oh Prince yeah, Harry. you'd have you'd have to. You'd have to. No judgment, Megan. But again, the fact that she just can't be honest, and it's not even like... She can't be honest, though, Lauren. She cannot be honest. Right, and it's not like, right, this is the this is the divide. Because people that hate Megan are like, she can't be honest. I think when we say that, we mean that... If- there are still limitations that have been placed on them, but that's why there's this inherent tension in this series. Oh, no, Because it I- is purporting to be the real story but when I say she can't be honest I mean it's just it's a matter of degrees like of course I knew about the royal family of course you know every millennial girl has a fantasy about marrying Prince Harry but I never thought it would happen to me it's as easy as fucking that this like I had never heard of this royal family before that's actually a pretty good impression of her but it's like you can't be a fucking genius which you purported to be, and I believe. Yeah, and then also, I believe that too. You can't all—you can't be a fucking history buff and be like, I didn't know about the history of the royal family. It's like pick a lane. Yeah. Well, also because of Princess Diana, it's like that is one thing yeah. that Americans know about. We know about Harry, and we know about William, and we know about Princess Diana, and of course we know about the Queen and Prince Charles. The the you know the core group. We know about that. And Tyler Perry is interviewed in this new three-part series. I assume it's three parts as well. And he even says that. It's like, that's all she had to say. Like, Tyler Perry goes, oh, the most I knew about the royal family was from Diana's death. Just say that. Yeah. I get it. Anything she says is going to be scrutinized. But also, they're boring people. And this story isn't that Interesting. Interesting. I know. Well, it's also very drawn out because, I mean, look, they have been cut off. They need to pay for their security. And they made a deal with Netflix. And instead of this being just like a two, three hour documentary as God intended, it has been stretched out into a six part limited series, which is unnecessary because ironically, there's not enough story. No, we have to get into like we haven't even gotten to the wedding. Yeah, from where they fucking did us dirty that the first part <laughs> ends with them about about to get married but i know the first like one episode really does feel like megan's like canadian version of emily in paris or something <laughs> where she's just like on suits like i learned so much about suits so they get to the minutia of her career but then gloss over the fact that her first uh, dealings in Hollywood was being a deal or no deal girl. Yeah, which is like, that's just a cool thing to include. But I feel like she must feel like that's low class so she doesn't want to include it. That's Look, that's she's, critici- she's criticized for everything. And so I'm- that's the reality of the situation, you know? I guess because maybe she doesn't want to show that because that is like, she's not even talking. That's... <laughs> But then again, there's nothing wrong with being like a model. You know what I mean? That's basically what the deal or no deal girls are. They're models. I think the most telling thing that they can't comprehend is that their story is not that interesting. Like your brother screaming at you is, do you not know how families work? (laughs) Well, to be fair, his Prince William seems like, I mean, they do not seem like fun. I don't fault him for, for getting out, but it's like, okay, you had a couple of months Seemingly, it seems like you had three days where it was like your dad said he wasn't going to cover your security. And then Tyler Perry was like, come live in my home and I'll give you security. Well, it is fucked up that 
they cut off their security. They should have to pay for their security for life, regardless of whether they're performing royal duties or not, because in Harry's case, he was born into this family. He had absolutely no choice and was literally forced to become a celebrity against his will as a child so that taxpayers can keep financing their lavish lifestyle. Did he need to get $100 million from Spotify to make a podcast I mean, that he hasn't made yet? Yeah, they got to keep, you know, they got to keep that Montecito life going. They got to keep, security's expensive as we learn from Kim and Kanye's divorce, you know? That's absolutely true. But it's also like, did you have to buy a $15 million house? Uh, when you grow up in Buckingham Palace? Yeah. It has not, I just looked this up this morning. It has nine bedrooms and 16 baths, which is a real rich home thing that I never have understood, which is like, why are there so many bathrooms compared to bedrooms? I guess it's assuming that every room is occupied by two people and then they each get their own bathroom, which is actually pretty considerate. Anyway, I won't be watching this second part. Oh, I will. I'll report back. So if you're wondering why we're not talking about the television event of the year, the White Lotus finale, it's because we couldn't wait to talk about it. So we released a Patreon episode earlier this week. But I want to revisit the White Lotus because we received a really incredible call. Hi, this is me and my husband. And we're a big, big fucking fans of you guys. This is not a joke. We're just laughing for other reasons. But um, my husband is a fantastic rendition of the White Lotus theme song. I just think you guys would appreciate it. Take it away. Can I just say this might be my favorite genre of caller, which is I don't know what it is about when our listeners get drunk and want to call us. <laughs> I love it. But I love it too. I like that we have deranged listeners. And we mean that in the most loving way. Yeah. I love that someone is tipsy and then remembers to call our hotline number or like, what is it? Is it already in your phones, guys? Do you go to our episode to, like, find the number? You know what you guys should do? Like, next time you know you're going to have a big night, just Sharpie the phone number on your arm. And then when the mood strikes, just call in. Yes, we also got this call, which brings up a point that we did not get into, I think, on the episode. Okay, the reason why Aldi is such a bad guy is because he sells out his mother for $50,000 and a sex worker. Like... He is going to get his perverted father back with this woman who has, like, you know, seems like she's kind of moved on. She's, like, really uh, convicted that he's a shitty guy. He doesn't want anything to do with her. He knows that. And Albie's going to coerce, gaslight her back with her shitty fucking cheating husband for $50,000. No, Albie is one of the most sociopathic characters on the show. That's all. Yes, she's correct. It is evil that he was willing to emotionally manipulate his mother for $50,000. Yes, and I made the point on the Patreon episode that Albie is not a good guy. I'm pretty sure that Mike White was trying to tackle that idea of the good guy persona and that many guys that consider themselves good guys and especially say lines like, you know, I'm too nice for girls. 
are not good guys <laughs> and do not have good moral compasses. Unless they're Luke's. Luke's notwithstanding. But Luke would never say he's a good guy. He would just be a good guy. Right. It's true. And that is demonstrated at the very end when, yes, he says to his father that he used, that he's already called the mom. Right. And then the cycle is going to continue because that hot chick passes by and they all check her out. Also, I don't think I mentioned this in the episode, but nothing made me happier than the ending. Watching Lucia and Mia skipping down the street, so happy because their dreams had basically come true. It was so heartwarming. Scammer life forever. Yeah. No, I love them so much. So great. Also, in that episode, I was struggling to think of casting choices for future seasons because you put me on the spot. Yes, I'm sorry. I I did spring that on you out of nowhere. That's how we ended the episode. We talked about potential locations. I pitched a wintry locale in the week between Christmas and New Year's, and I just want Sarah Michelle Gellar in it. But you've thought about this a bit more? Okay. It's White Lotus Saint Tropez. (laughs) Okay. Isabelle Huppert plays the manager. Parker Posey plays a drug-addicted divorcee. Great. Sort of in the vein of the Jennifer Coolidge character because we need someone really neurotic to replace her. And I would also really love to see Bette Midler play a guest because her acting career was built on roles where she played really rich, bitchy women. And then as she sort of got older, she aged out of that. But I think this would be the perfect show for her to have a comeback on. And also, I think we need Rupert Everett on this show. Ooh, yeah. He's a great comedic actor. He's someone that came out of the closet too early and paid the price professionally yeah, for doing that. What's the line? The first one through the door takes the hit. Yeah, exactly. And he has also lived that sort of like, I'm on a yacht with Donatella Versace life. So I think that he could really bring that to whatever character he's playing. And you're getting the right level of actor. I made this point as well in the Patreon episode where like I love people's fan cast, but it's a lot of like two famous people that would not do this ensemble show. And also like, look, if we're in films now making movie stars look like character actors, see Jared Leto as Paolo Gucci in House of Gucci and Colin Farrell, who literally spent four hours in makeup to look like Richard Kind in The Batman, (laughs) then let Richard Kind fucking be in The White Lotus, okay? Yeah. Well, this show proved to be the perfect comeback vehicle for Jennifer Coolidge, so I hope that that can be replicated for another brilliant character actor. So she can now be sucked up in the Marvel Universe? Yeah, also, Parker Posey deserves it, and she was such a standout. Wait, why was The Staircase not nominated? Uh, I think Colin Firth was nominated. Really? Because that was such a good show. I think that was the best of the true crime shows this year. Also, wait, Tony Collette was not nominated? She should also go to the White Lotus, by the way. Yeah, I mean, it's a real actor's roulette between Ryan Johnson's Knives Out movies, which there'll be another one on Netflix, and the White Lotus. I said this on the Patreon episode. That's the joke is who's going to have... Oh, the winter wintry locale first i would love a wintry locale and you know if we have to kill someone you know a freak skiing accident that's a very plausible way to die on the slopes you know yeah we didn't mention that mike white did an interview where he gave the littlest of hints of what the third season might be about he said the first season kind of highlighted money and the second season is sex i think the third season would be Maybe a satirical and funny look at death and Eastern religion and spirituality, which has made people think that 
maybe the third season will be set in an Asian country and thematically be centered around death or reincarnation. Okay, again, as I've said previously, I am down for a less beachy location. I thought it would be funny if, I mean, again, if this show keeps going on, it's eventually going to be White Lotus Orlando or something. Yeah. Well, if you want to hear us talk more about this, join the Patreon. Yeah. Sorry that we've paid Wall some content, but... Yeah. Especially also, we're recording one less episode because it's the holidays and we need a break, so... But for main feed people, this is exciting for you because we're unlocking a Patreon episode for you next week. Yes. So stay tuned for that. Happy holidays. We love you guys. And we'll be back with something next week. Yeah. We have to figure out the least objectionable Patreon episode (laughs) we can release. Yeah, we have to go back and re-listen to some of them and make sure they're good for just sort of broad public consumption. Yeah, we have, uh, you know, things that are main feed thoughts, which is what you're hearing right now. And then there are Patreon thoughts. Yeah. Things that are said behind a paywall. Maybe that's what Megan and Harry need to start. Would you pay for Harry and Megan's Patreon? No, of course not. Anyway. All right, guys. Thank you for listening as always. We love you and bye. Bye.